This is Critical Attitudes, and I'm Nathan Waddell. In this last episode of the current series of Critical Attitudes, I spoke with Professor Lindsay Stonebridge, a colleague of mine here at Birmingham. The conversation was prompted in part by the publication of Lindsay's most recent book, Placeless People, which looks at the links between rights and refugees in relation to 20th century literary cultures, philosophy, and debates and urgent anxieties about statelessness. Looking at your career and the sort of the arc of it, you've, um, I mean, you've worked in quite a few different places. You, you started at um, Sussex and then you were at Kingston and then you were at UEA for quite a long time. And then most recently here, you're at Birmingham. What has it been like? Um, wonderful. I still think we have one of the best jobs um, in the world. And in fact, I was thinking um, the weekend... I thought I used to have the best job in the world because when my last couple of years at UEA I was in the history department and taught in the literature department as well and that was great but I, that was now the second best job in the world because I actually now have the first best job in the world here which is also interdisciplinary so going back to your question um, that arc was always an interdisciplinary arc for me I mean, I studied literature um, with history, and I then did, I cut my teeth as a critical theorist in the 1980s, which those of us of a certain age will remember what a kind of baptism of critical fire that was, especially at Sussex in the 1980s. I mean, the stories we all do tell, probably, <clears throat> probably in a very boring way to younger colleagues about those days. And the job that I got at the University of East Anglia was interdisciplinary modernism, and in some ways, I think, you know, I've done lots of things over the last 25 years, but I'm still an interdisciplinary modernist at heart, and that's where I started. I mean, looking at your publications, the the various projects that you've worked on and the books that you've edited, I want to ask you about Placeless People sort of in a moment, um, but the, 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 the edited collections in particular... I'm thinking of British fiction after modernism, the novel at mid-century, but also um, reading Melanie Klein. I mean, even those two books on their own suggest a, a, a sort of a, a huge range of attentiveness and interest. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you balanced interdisciplinarity? Yes. <clears throat> well, interdisciplinarity... Was a, uh, there was a very good joke going on around interdisciplinarity about, um, you know, after, after five, five drinks, we're all interdisciplinary. Um, <laughs> but I think... I think it's more um, a sense of what it means to be immersed in a time and a period. And my kind of period has always been 20th century up to the present. And the defining feature of of my work has always been around questions of violence. Um, So I did start my first... My my thesis was on Melanie Klein's relationship to modernism because everyone was speaking about Lacan's relationship to modernism and Freud's relationship to modernism and not really many people were talking about Klein. And I was lucky enough to work with Jacqueline Rose who was pioneering work in this field at at the time. And Klein was interesting because she was asking that question, where does violence come from? And that's a question that has preoccupied me for, for a long, long time. Literature has always been a vital part of that conversation because literature can answer those questions in a way that other kinds of language or experience just cannot. And I still think, um, I actually have to feel it more and more strongly that um, literature has to be the cornerstone, it's always at the middle of everything I do that's interdisciplinarity because literature can do things that other languages cannot 
do. So there is a kind of line between the Manly Klein book and British fiction after modernism, um, because the British fiction after modernism um, book was, well, what happens when violence settles? What happens in the interim periods? Mm. How do we account for violence? Um, so there, there is always that kind of direct connection. Yeah. Um, Klein is a sort of key figure in your intellectual constellation yeah. that sort of sits around your work. One of the other very important people is Hannah Arendt. Yeah. This may be a stupid question, but what is it about Arendt that has yeah. so f- held your attention? Yeah, yeah. My, work, my career has been dominated by two very strong Jewish women, Melanie Klein and, and Hannah Arendt. The first, as I said, Melanie Klein talks about where violence comes from. Hannah Arendt, to me, was in, it still is compellingly interesting because she asked the question of how is violence organised. So it is her work, partly when, when she first went to the States as a, as a refugee, remember she was a stateless person for 18 years of her life, she taught in history departments and in political theory departments, but if you look at her syllabi, they're all literature, they're all, at least 50% of the text she taught are um, literary texts. So what I like about Hannah Arendt um, is um, her range, um, and she'll go where she can find the answers to these questions, and her sense of being an outsider. And I think both on a kind of personal sense, there's a sense of being an outsider, which I strongly identify with, but also in an academic sense. What does it mean actually not to feel comfortable within a discipline or a set of institutions? Um, And I think for a lot of us who were trained in the 80s and 90s, who did come into higher education as outsiders, those figures are very, very important because they're the ones, you know, who never knew how to sit at a high table or never felt so confident in their third or fourth, you know, knowing languages or not having Latin or whatever. Although I should say Hannah Arendt um, prided herself on her Greek and Latin, which she was very good. So it's that kind of outsider perspective, but also someone with that kind of rage, range and rage too. The other thing about Hannah Rensen, I, I just she she was a realist. She, I mean, the, the, the other thing about um, that unites a lot of women in the 20th century is the very steely determined realism. I think Klein had that. She was not afraid to say that people were violent. Um, she's not she's not afraid of children. Most people are afraid of children. Hannah Arendt had that. Um, Susan Sontag. Um, you know, Muriel Spark, who's another great hero of mine, were all um, prepared to look at the world very, very squarely and find a new language to talk about about that. So there is a coherence there. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it strikes me that your interest in those figures and their, as you very eloquently put it, you know, their, their realism, their, their frankness, yeah. their ability to face the world for what it is and to try and formulate appropriate solutions or paths to solutions you know, therein, seems to be reflected in a, a similar frankness on your part with very difficult subject matter, you know, for the, for the books that you've written, the, the monographs that you've written. I mean, just looking at the titles of these, The Destructive Element, British Psychoanalysis and Modernism, The Writing of Anxiety, Imagining Wartime in 1940s British Culture, The Judicial Imagination, Writing After Nuremberg, they all seem to imply a, an urgency to use scholarship as a way to deal with incredibly difficult and pressing questions. Is that fair? Is that sort of what drives you? It, that's what drives me. I don't think all scholarship is necessarily about that, because there there's, I mean, one of the joys of our profession is that people are doing lots of different things, and they're all worthwhile. I do think, um, in terms of the humanities, 
we have as much to say as if not more to say um, about urgent and necessary problems. And I felt this like I think nearly everyone has increasingly over the last two years. And, you know, that that, that kind of sense of, you know, um, you know, I think it's Sarah Churchwell um, once said to me, um, it's, you know, um, humanities for humanity's sake, you know, art for art's sake, humanity for humanity's sake. And it's, it sounds very squishy and real when you say it, but actually when you look at what, what, you know, the kind of people who've been at the cutting edge of humanism who really shifted our discourses around humanism have always been quite tough realists mm. as well. Um, so it's to get away, I think, I think that sense of... I, I found myself saying the other day, I think literature needs to you know, get back to its normative role. Actually say, actually, yeah, actually, you know, literature does give us rules to live by. They're not bad rules. They're better than maybe, you know, neoliberal capitalist rules, some of us might think. Um, these people have taught us how to live. You don't you know, spend your time reading all of Tolstoy without thinking it might do you, you, know, give, you give you some clue how, how to be in the world. Um, and I think we need to go back and stop being shy about saying that and actually say literature's always been very good at you know projecting the future of saying you know, this is you know there are different ways we can imagine our relationships to one another um so yeah i, I do feel that there's a, a social mission of literature to go back to that um that leverside moment it's a very different mission now than the one was in the 20th century we can talk a bit about that but i feel very strongly that that what we're doing should count should be relevant well it seems that your most recent book Placeless People, yeah. um, uh, the subtitle of which is Writings, Rights and Refugees, seems to be in this mould again, and perhaps even more urgently so, mm-hmm. because it is dealing with one of the, if not the key problem of our, yeah. of our time. Yeah. I've got various questions about this, but I just wondered if you could say a little about how you came to research and to formulate this project in the first place. Yeah. What, what sort of specific things fed into it and motivated it? Yeah. It, it, I didn't set out to write a book I mean, the book is about statelessness and the refugee crisis, inverted commas, of the mid-20th century, as um, as they prefigure today. I did not set out to write a book about refugees. It came out of my book, The Judicial Imagination, and what I was doing in that book was exploring how writers wrote about, on the one hand, the great war crime trials of um, the 20th century, and on the other, the emergence of the human rights regime as it emerged from the mid-40s up until the present. And I thought what I'd be dealing with in that book is responses to trauma, particularly to genocide and particularly to the Holocaust. But what I discovered is that writers, um, as well as jurists, um, were, yes, okay, you know, of course they were worried with the trauma of of World War II, of course they were worried about genocide, of course they were worried about um, um, barbarity, etc. But what they were also worried about was statelessness. And that was for two reasons. One is international law um, is always going to run up about uh, uh, against the kind of abyss, as it were, between national self-determination and people who fall outside nation-states. So if you're going to have a universal rights regime, you're always going to fall into that, that trap. I mean, what happens you when know, you have to give states... The um, best way to secure human rights is to have secure nation-states... How, what happens when that failed? That's the question of statelessness. It's not the question of violence, it's the question of statelessness. Also, um, post-war, um, as we understand, was terrible for lots of people. And post-war was the worst thing that could happen post-Second World War um, um, for, for many millions of people. Israel-Palestine, India-Pakistan, um, women in particular. And refugees kept on coming. 
So after I wrote The Judicial Imagination, I thought, OK, I'm going to write a book on statelessness and refugees as the kind of part two of that earlier project. As I was writing, the um, Arab Spring started, the final fallout of the Iraq War um, started to erupt, i.e. started to affect Europe as well. So it was, it, was, it was quite uncanny to be writing this book about an earlier moment, as our own moment was unfolding. And the strangest, I think, moment of that is I was rereading 1984 in the summer of 2015, i.e. the height of the refugee crisis, at the moment when David Cameron was talking, you know, inflamed language about, you know, hordes of migrants. And I'd already looked at, I was interested because down and out in Paris and London, um, it's very much that earlier migrant moment of the 20s, and, and, and Orwell is consistently interesting on questions of citizenship and nationhood, etc., as you know. And I opened 1984, and the, there's that scene where Winston is coming into consciousness um, and it's the beginning of him beginning to resist totalitarianism and he does it by writing, which of course we're all very interested in because it's the relationship between writing and having a conscience and being resistant to that kind of thing. And he writes his diary. What's he writing about? He's trying to write down a scene of a minute of hate from a hate film that he'd been at previously. What is the film about? It's about the sinking of, of migrant refugees in the Mediterranean. Now, this is 2015. This is exactly what was happening. Orwell, really, really interesting, as he was writing The Exodus, um, which was the boat that, um, you know, boat that launched a nation famously, was trying to get to Palestine and being, being blocked by the British. He was working with Arthur Kessler at the time. And I thought, my God, 1984, everyone remembers the rats. No one remembers the sinking ship. The question of the refugee is central to 1984, and I hadn't spotted it. And I don't think many of us had. So it was, like, it was very, very strange times watching this unfolding crisis occurring as I was uncovering the first moments of that crisis back in the 20th century. So it was one of the most sort of powerful writing experiences, reading and rereading and writing experiences I've ever had. The, the title is particularly interesting to me because you say writings yeah. as opposed to, say, fiction or novels or yeah, yeah. literature yeah, or whatever you yeah. want sort of substitute for it. Why did you choose that word? Um... That's a very good question. Um, I think because the forms of writing I'm interested in do cross between fiction, journalism, political philosophy, politics, and increasingly so. That doesn't... And so sometimes it looks a bit like a cop-out. I mean, you know, writing, everything's writing. But on the other hand, it's not, because what I also wanted to say was there's a way of writing that allows these questions to be stated that do involve creativity. So if you look, the first two chapters of the book are on Hannah Arendt, who's well-known as a political theorist. She thought her way through statelessness and the question of rights through literature. You know, one of the first things she did, one well, of her first big commissions in New York, was to write on Kafka, when she was editing Kafka's diaries at the time. And as I read her on Kafka, what she was doing is using Kafka as a thought experiment. Um, and Kafka is you know, the great artist of the thought experiment, to think her way through her present moment. So there's this relationship between... I, don't mean, I mean, I, I, I do like genre criticism. I think it's important. We want to be able to do it. But precisely in order to see as we move across genres what it is writing is doing in the world. And it does very different things at different times. Orwell's another one who's constantly moving between 
those those two modes, as you know. Yeah. I mean, for that reason, I mean, I find it particularly fascinating that you focus on 1984 in the book because mm. it. You said about the the work that these things do in the world. Mm. That book has done a lot of good, mm. but I think also it. it can do a lot of bad as yeah. well by virtue of how it suffers from its own reputation yes, yeah. so this project to me in, in many dimensions is fascinating um, but as you say given my interest in all I find that side of it very intriguing given that you're able to take such a well-known text and show how blind we've been mm. to a very important yeah. you know, attribute yeah. of it that in some ways has been a comfort to us yeah. in the past you know yeah. sort of the, the great critique of the totalitarian agenda yeah. But in fact, it's showing us things that are very uncomfortable for you know, the West to, yeah. to, to think about. Yeah. I wanted to ask also if the work on that book and the books that have been sort of leading up to it, do you see a, an inseparability or a sort of a direct link between that kind, of, that kind of scholarship and the work that you've been doing with people outside yeah. of archives and libraries? Because yeah. you, you, you are unafraid and admirably so to engage with communities that are not based in higher education mm-hmm. and refugees in particular mm. how how has that been for you how how has that challenged you and how has that made a difference to you personally mm-hmm. i think well it, it directly leads to why i'm so um pleased to be here in this particular job because those the judicial imagination and Placeless People were books about how human rights got into the global narrative in the late 20th century. And so in that way, they're quite traditional scholarship. I mean, they're text-based, etc., etc. But they, they show to me that the, these things do not come from nowhere. And I actually do believe, and I know it sounds a bit sweet to say it, that there would not be any human rights without writers. I mean, that's quite, that's quite true at a kind of basic level. I mean, Jefferson had been kind of, you know, really you know, flat-footed with a sentence... I don't think we'd have the same you know, ditto. I mean, the whole 18th century, as 18th century scholars will tell us, uh, was key, but also um, in, in the 20th century. But it also showed me that, you know, that project, the 20th century version of human rights, has failed. It's, I mean, it has been failing for quite some time, for reasons um, that um, people like refugees will, will happily explain to you. Um, and for other reasons to, 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 to do with um, globalisation, to do with um, big power structures, to do with some disastrous wars and to also crucially to do with the forever war on terror so one of the reasons that i i i work with other communities um, outside academia is because i am committed to rights and i think with a lot of people i think there is a new discourse of rights that's emerging and it's emerging in other places in the world but also in other communities in the world so it's you know the combination between refugees and their hosts who are often also refugees in, in lebanon jordan Turkey, in Greece, um, it's in, in in terms of the activism that's taking place around um, migrants. It's in terms of the activism that takes place um, in in campaigns um, around gender equality across the world. And I think that kind of um, I've said it before, and I'm not certainly not the only person to say it. A lot of people are saying it quite loudly. Human rights will survive. It needs to be properly post-colonial, okay? and literature and writing are key to that because that's how people communicate. Okay. Okay, I mean, words carry, images carry. So I think for me, it's a way of recommitting to human rights, but from a post-colonial perspective, but also around people who who are literally writing the new narrative of rights, who aren't in the UN, who aren't in the major NGOs, who aren't in in places of power, 
but are making other things happen. And we know this as literary historians, you know, that mm. communities of words are communities of ideas, and then things change. Literature does make things happen, actually. I mean, it was half right, half wrong on that. Can we take this back to this idea of the social mission? Yeah. Um, I mean, do you see that one of the consequences of, say, a post-colonial rereading of some of our core principles yeah. is precisely to see the ways in which words actually have consequences yeah. Yeah. and and need, therefore, to be treated very, very carefully. Yeah. Yeah. Because it seems to me that that, that is one of the key consequences of the kind of interdisciplinary work yeah, that you're yeah, committed yeah, to yeah. which is to sort of refresh the mind yeah. the mind's attitude to the medium through which we communicate yeah, you know and, yeah. to, and to remind not only the people in who have been sort of abused by power but also the powerful you mentioned david cameron yeah. um, i mean that moment in particular yeah, yeah, is, yeah. is never going to sort of leave his record that words you know are, are dynamite as much as they're kind of our savior yeah, yeah. i mean which is a long-winded way of asking you, what do you see the role of the academic yeah. being yeah. in such a sort of revivified yeah. context yeah. Of, yeah. of language? Well, I think there are two two answers um, to that on the role of the academic. Going back to the words and literature and human rights for a moment, one of the discourses that I find that annoys me most, actually, to be perfectly honest, is the one, one that goes, literature is very good because it teaches you about empathy for other people. Now, which I call literary humanitarianism. And I have a real issue with this one because there's a, there's a history of humanitarianism which is um, cheek by jowl the history of colonialism. It's a chequered history. It's, it has good things about it, it has bad things about it. And as human rights, uh, literature, literature and human rights scholars have shown over the last 10 years very, very persuasively, it has its own um, narrative structures. I mean, Joey Slaughter's done some fantastic work on this. Um, Jim Dawes has done some fantastic work on this. So, you know, a good, a good, you know, good training in close reading will say, no, it's not about empathy. It's about narrative and it's about difficulty. Yeah. Um, you know, in, when the 18th century novel was not about just getting people to empathise with other people. It was about the complex relationship of sympathy to capital and history. It's very, very complicated, and we need to reinvent that. And that's why I'll still say I'm a modernist, because actually I think literature is there to be difficult. It's not there to make you feel good about yourself. You know, just because you can feel pity for someone doesn't make you unnecessarily a good human being. It just shows you where you're alive. Or as I say somewhere in the book, you know, don't confuse your capacity um, to feel sorry for people with the business of what it means to live with other people in the world which is you know, questions around redistribution, questions around politics, questions about wealth, questions around equality. So I kind of want literature to go back to um, being difficult and asking uncomfortable questions. And I think that's why post-colonialism and decolonisation are the only way we can go now and still have an honest um, discourse. That's, that's, that's sort of one side of that. The other thing, someone asked me a question um, in Oxford, if we all believe in, those of us who believe in cosmopolitanism and post-colonialism, what should we do now, those discourses of, you know, um, on a crisis? And my answer to that is, well, some of us just need to learn to shut up. I mean, we're in positions of enormous power. I know it doesn't feel like it in the British University at the moment. It feels quite, quite the opposite. But compared to the rest of the world, we are we have access to archives. Think about people who don't have access to archives. Millions. We have access to space. We have access to time. We're, we're immensely, immensely privileged. And some of our job is just to roll over and open up those spaces for other people to occupy, whether it's other voices or other students or other junior colleagues or other people from the world. Um, it's to use our power to shut up. I think particularly in the West. 
um, particularly for Western scholars, is 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 where we should be now. So back down to your, you know, why bother? Why why go out into communities? Why go into other places? It's it's kind of you know intellectual redistribution. So I like to end every episode with a with a question that I'm asking everybody. Are you reading anything at the moment that you're willing to share with the listeners? Am I reading anything? I'm reading. I am rereading Daniel Trilling's book "Lights in the Distance." Daniel is a journalist, but also um, uh, trained as a literature person. And it's um, what I love about. I read it in draft. What I love about this book is Daniel's been tracking um, migrants across Europe and making friendships with refugees and migrants um, for the last roughly 10 years. So it's a chronicle of the refugee crisis. And because he's such a good journalist, he's one of the people who's so clear about the origins of our current crisis. But because he is trained as a literature scholar, um, his sense of dialogue, his sense of storytelling, it reminds me of um, Benjamin talking about Leskov and the storyteller. He's, he's, he's retelling people's stories, that very, very powerful, and we call it testimony now, but it's, it's something um, much more kind of communal going on in the way he tells the story. So I'm rereading um, Daniel Trilling's Lights in the Distance now, which I, I, I can thoroughly recommend as an example of writing, which is both literature and fiction and journalism and history, um, as a model to be emulated. Wonderful. Lindsay Stonebridge, thank you very much. Thank you.